what spirited singing, what an enjoyable time that we have already had. It's already certainly possible for us to say that it's been marvelous and good for us to have been here. The words have been so challenging and sung with such beauty and such fervor of thought and mind. One of the things that's often stated about the singing that seems to be present here is not only the lovely blending of the voices and the marvelous leadership that we have amongst the men that lead us in song, but is the way there's such participation that we each can lift our voices together, not just a selected few, but as God would have it all of us, lifting our voices together in praise and adoration to God. It is good for us to give thought not only for that aspect of worship, but also, as Jeff mentioned in prayer, the thought about the Word of God, the leadership that He's given us, the guidebook He's given us, and how thankful for it we certainly can eternally be. Tonight, as you may have noted in the bulletin and also now on the wall to my left, a consideration of the four, first four books of the New Testament, those books we often call the Gospel Accounts. We certainly will not be able to do what might be said to be justice for all four books in a 30-minute period, but certainly some thoughts that can help us as we strive to put those books together, appreciating the messages that they contain, the rightful place in Scripture that they hold, and the way in which we often can appreciate the viewpoint given to us in those four gospel accounts. It is interesting that some introductory thoughts might well set the stage for a discussion like this. God has blessed us with the greatest single literary document the world has ever known, the New Testament. In 27 scintillating, pulsating books, we've got a movement that is so systematic and so logical. It starts with four gospel accounts that detail by far the greatest life ever lived, the only perfect life ever lived. It sets before us the details of His thinking, the details of His actions, the characteristics of His efforts, and the way He was so often viewed and rejected. However, all four of them close with His death. As sad and tragic as it was, we see that beneath those embers of potential tragedy rises a movement that has shattered the shackles of sin the world over. And we are still today blessed so much by New Testament Christianity. We notice in the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, we next build upon those four we've just studied. The greatest life ever lived, now the question is, how do we appropriate the blessings and gifts of His life to ourselves? How do we become Christians? And so in the book of Acts, we've got not only the beginning of the church, but example after example of how individuals, men and women, simply became New Testament Christians. And certainly it goes without saying that if we do today what they did then, that we can become today what they became then, Christians. At this point, that next brings us to the next 21 books of the New Testament, Romans through Jude. We have in this series of books thoughts like this. We've studied about the life of Christ. We've highlighted how to become a Christian. These next 21 books, how do we live the Christian life? Moment by moment and day by day. And we'll find in those books, for example... Issues that revolve around every aspect of life. What we say, James chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. What we think, Philippians 4, verse 8. What we do when we appreciate the nature of worship scattered all throughout those books. We learn, again, how to live the Christian life so clearly, so pristinely, and so blessedly. That just leaves one final stanza. If we now have learned how to live the Christian life, all that's left is how to die in Christ, how to go home to glory. 
And so it is. The book of Revelation, the only New Testament book of prophecy, highlights the great victory to those in Christ, the fact that He has already defeated the devil, Revelation 12, 11, and how that you and I too can enjoy that victory at that final saga of the end of time. And so in that concise fashion, all of the New Testament can be wrapped up so easily. But it's that first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that might do us well to reflect on for the remainder of our time this evening. In fact, near the bottom of that slide, I chose that as the lesson text, and that's what was read just a moment ago. What about the Holy Spirit's purpose and His reasoning and His prerogative of giving us four gospel accounts? There are, after all, is only one New Testament prophecy book and one New Testament history book, but four gospel accounts. Why was it the wisdom and infinite soul of God to give us four gospel accounts? Maybe verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20 highlight the best anthem that prepares us to consider all of these tonight. Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Here we've got, this is what was recorded and this is sufficient, that you might have life in His name. John 21, 25 will say that perhaps it would not even be possible for the world to hold all the books that would be required to detail all of what the Lord did. But this is written and sufficient it is to help us understand the gloriousness of the Christ, the nature of His being as the Messiah, and what He has in store for those that are His faithful followers. Tonight about those four gospel accounts, we've already highlighted some features about it. But it might be well to again revisit what might be in addition said about four of them. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You'll notice upon reading them, and I'm sure we've each appreciated it, that there are some interesting distinctions amongst them. Although they all detail the work of Christ, they detail His life, and they detail the efforts of those about Him and His rejection, there nonetheless are some comments that might be stated like this. As far as there being four of them, we've already highlighted His was the greatest by far ever lived. Here we have four accounts to substantiate and to corroborate, to provide authenticity to the fact that He was who He said He was. Quite often, what we find in one gospel account, there's a slight detail that's not in any sense a contradiction, but a slight different thing presented in another gospel account. And when we put them all together, we have an even greater understanding and a greater belief in that which we read. Sure enough, in terms of those multiple accounts, that's an easily fair statement to make. And tonight we shall have opportunity to look more carefully at the reasons why we say that. But it might also be noted at the bottom of that slide, something else that seems apparent from the internal evidence of these books is that initially they were so beneficial to different audiences. Today we're the beneficiaries of all of them. But for instance, we shall learn in our study tonight that they, at the initial time of that first century, were so pressing and so powerful and so compelling to slightly different audiences. And tonight, as we give thought to that, it will give us a deeper appreciation of these same four New Testament gospel accounts. First on the list is Matthew. 
We come to the book of Matthew as the first book in the New Testament. And we easily find in 28 chapters a number of things that initially might be stated like this. Matthew, you'll notice initially, was written by a gentleman named Matthew. He was Jewish in his origin in terms of his background. He was from the Galilean region as we learn in chapters 9 and 10 of this same book. As far as giving some thought to this Matthew, he was an apostle. In that list, in Matthew chapter 10, that lists the twelve selected apostles, his name is in that list. And in fact, his name is in all of the inspired listings of those apostles in the New Testament. He was initially, before his conversion to the Master, he was a publican, a tax collector if you please. And so he had a background that brought him into conveyance and into association with many others who looked very much oppositely upon tax collectors. And yet he was one that wrote this book that became the first book in the New Testament. When you give thought to Matthew, you might notice the name itself is a bit intriguing. The name Matthew means gift of Jehovah. And certainly what a great gift this book of Matthew is. Interestingly enough, as we contemplate the matter of Matthew, it might be that we're prepared to notice that it seems as one reads through these 28 chapters that those who initially were so powerfully benefited by the book were those of Jewish background. That is to say, those aware of the law of Moses, those who had been influenced by it, and those who were now prepared to accept the teaching of the Master, Jesus as the Christ. How can we say that and what internal evidence might lead us to appreciate that initially this book was so much directed toward those of Jewish background? It all starts with this next observation. Consider yourself again as a person of Jewish history for just a moment. You would have prized yourself greatly as one of heritage to those noble characters in the Old Testament. I am of the loins of Abraham. I am a descendant of David. I am a descendant of those who in the Old Testament were described as the precious chosen people of God. To be numbered amongst that people meant that there were a number of promises given especially to you. After all, out of your loins, the Christ child, the Messiah was supposed to come. The one that was to be a blessing for all people. The Jews, needless to say, looked upon themselves in a very special way because of that. And yet, when we come to the book of Matthew, we notice that Matthew specifically teaches and asserts and even emphasizes that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament Messiah prophecies. How often, especially in Matthew, do we read, For so saith the prophet, for thus wrote the prophet, as speaketh the prophet. And then Matthew proceeds to quote or allude to some Old Testament prophecy. In fact, you'll notice, over a hundred times by some who've counted, Matthew makes a special reference or illusion, sometimes even direct quotation from the Old Testament. To a Jew, one who had great belief and confidence in the law of Moses and in the Old Testament, it would have been a very telling thing for someone to quote time and again out of the Old Testament and say, He fulfills this. Jesus is the epitome of this. He, in fact, brought all of it to fruition. And doesn't Matthew do that so effectively? Again, think of all those times scattered in 28 chapters. However, that really by itself isn't all. Let's look at just a few examples. 
chapter 1 perhaps provides one of the most interesting ways to begin. Matthew chapter 1 begins by listing Jesus as the son of David, as the son of Abraham. And He is shown through 42 generations to descend from the very nature of Abraham himself. But pause a moment and note with me. Isn't it intriguing that we have Matthew showing that Jesus is the son of David, also the son of Abraham. For those that were Jews, two of the most notable of the Old Testament characters... And Jesus has shown to descend from them. After all, weren't the Jews recognized as themselves, we are the seed of Abraham. And yet, that's what Matthew shows Jesus to be. The principal descendant of Abraham through whom one and all are blessed. Amazingly enough, as you give that thought to the book of Matthew, it's easy to see just a few other features. The other thing that was so very pressing and telling to a Jew was the nature of the kingdom. After all, they looked forward, many of them at least, to another kind of kingdom much like the one David and Solomon enjoyed, one that had royal rule here upon earth and one that towered over other kingdoms of this earth. They wanted to cast the Romans off in terms of their influence over Judea. It is for all those reasons, might we notice briefly, Matthew's references to the kingdom. Over 50 times in 28 chapters, he makes reference to the kingdom and just a few of the features might be worthy of note. First of all, you'll notice the nature of this kingdom. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 19. Perhaps the principal verse of that group for us this evening would be verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We have here the statement of the kingdom, and the Lord said, I will build it. And the Lord said, even the bars of death won't be able to prevent it. The nature of this kingdom so powerfully presented in that particular passage reminds us that in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the marching orders, if you will, or the nature of that kingdom is highlighted in the ways that we might reference to its law. That, of course, is that rather famous Sermon on the Mount. Time and again in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something intriguing. In fact, seven times He said, You have heard that it hath been said. And then He would quote some feature or passage or verse from the Old Testament. But then he would quickly say, but I say unto you. He took that law with which they were familiar and then he elevated the law that would reign supreme in this Christian kingdom as superior to that. You may notice again, he said, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But then he said, but I say unto you that if a man looketh on a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 you can see that the kingdom and the law of it was set forth and the Lord Jesus Christ asserted so clearly that the nature of that kingdom and the nature of what was its law was set in place fully and solely by Him. Maybe finally the key passage in all of Matthew again takes us one more time to the kingdom. In chapter 28 verses 18 through 20, it would have been very meaningful to a Jew. But Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. Jesus had all authority, all power, and He thus gave the marching orders to those apostles. And 20 centuries later, we still appreciate the blessing that's ours to send forth that same precious gospel message, principally by this usage of Matthew as the Holy Spirit has given it to us. But with those thoughts about Matthew, what about Mark? When we come to the book of Mark, we find some differences. As you'll notice by some of these comments on the wall to my left. First, a few historical observations. Mark was written certainly by a different person than Matthew. This time it was John Mark. We're told in Acts chapter 12 he was the son of that lady called Mary. And we learn that she was well enough to do that she had a house there in that Jerusalem area. Amazingly enough, we learn many things about John. He was a companion for part of the first missionary journey in Acts 13. However, it was he who did not complete the journey but went back home. And we notice that later caused a bit of a difficulty between he and Paul. We do find this same John Mark was a companion of Peter in 1 Peter 5.13. And we also appreciate the great role he ultimately had when even Paul issued an element of commendation toward him in Philemon 24. All of that tells us that what that distinction was between these two, namely Paul and John Mark, is not something that either allowed to keep them from their proper work in the kingdom. But now to the point at hand. Who initially would have benefited so much from the book that you and I call Mark? First of all, as one reads it, Mark is very much closer to the kind of thing that we would recognize today as an action thriller. The movement through Mark is fast. Things move very quickly from one saga, from one episode to the next. There isn't a great emphasis upon what was said. The emphasis is what was done. Again, it's filled with action. Notice how that would have benefited a Roman. Put yourself in the place of those who were citizens of Rome, in the Roman Empire in the first century. By that time, for several hundred years, they had ruled the world, and they would do so for a little bit longer. But we notice that their army was so fierce and mighty, they were re recalled and recollected as the ones that ruled over territories near and far. The Romans were accustomed to being the conquering, ruling people on earth. They wanted action and they wanted things to the point. Sometimes you and I use the phrase, beat around the bush. Typically one didn't beat around the bush with a Roman. You got to the point, you stated what you wanted to say, and you moved on from there. That's how they preferred things. Again, from the nature of their conquering character, that seems entirely reasonable, doesn't it? But notice how Mark fulfills that. Mark is the briefest of the gospel accounts, only 16 chapters. Being the briefest, again, he gets to the point and he gets to it at once. The key word in the book of Mark is also a very telling thing. Some of the times as we read these New Testament books, we encounter that there's a certain word or phrase that occurs time and again, and it's clear that that was important to the Holy Spirit. It was important to the message of the book. This particular book may have a very interesting key word. It occurs 42 times in 16 chapters. 
It's the word in Greek that means immediately or straightway. In other words, what the Lord accomplished and the things He brought to bear, He accomplished at once. When He did a miracle, it didn't wait till the next day. It didn't come about the next year. It happened at once. Immediately is arguably the key word in the book of Mark. You'll also notice several other interesting characteristics. The vigorous action is highlighted perhaps in ways like this. Although Mark is the briefest of the gospel accounts, he has roughly 20 of the Lord's miracles in this book. Interesting. The briefest book, but almost all, or at least in terms of number, a great many of the miracles. Again, highlighting what Jesus did. Highlighting the action. When He healed, it was immediate. What about that case when He stilled the storm in Mark chapter 4? You'll notice beginning in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4, the Lord was asleep in the hull of a ship. While the storm raged near and far round about outside that ship, they woke Him up and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And the Lord simply spoke and calmed that storm immediately. That still is an interesting lesson for your life and mine. Isn't it still not the Master that can calm the storms of your life and mine if we will allow Him to do so? Amazing, isn't it, that the nature of Mark takes us to what's at the bottom. Maybe the key verse to this book is the closing verse to chapter 7. He, speaking of Christ, hath done all things well. To a Roman, that would have been very interesting. Again, they were used to rule. They were used to authority. They were accustomed to power. They were accustomed to others giving them proper respect. And yet, Jesus did all things well. That would have captured the attention of the Roman. One other thing that's interesting as we give thought to the way that Mark develops that book under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is that interesting feature when on occasion he explains something that was of a Jewish observation. For example, in the opening verses of Mark chapter 7, we notice that as Mark was identifying that instance when Jesus was talking about that which defiled a man, the Pharisees were the ones that claimed that to eat with unwashing hands defiled. In parenthesis, Mark explains what that meant because a Roman would not have known. A Jew would have, and so Matthew wouldn't have needed to explain it in Matthew 15. As Mark explains it, he identified that it meant, again, with unwashing hands. All of that closes our brief consideration of Mark. But can't we say how blessed we are to have it? Up next is Luke. We come to the book of Luke, and in 24 chapters, we now learn many differing things. Luke reads very differently than either Matthew or Mark. Immediately, we encounter a number of those differences, and I've tried to highlight them there at the top, beginning with some of the history. It was Luke, of course, that wrote Luke. He was a physician, as we learned in Colossians chapter 4, and so he was a very intellectual, schooled person. He was trained under the nature of medicine. Perhaps it goes without saying that he casts an especial spotlight on the healing ministry of Jesus. To a physician, that would have been very interesting, I'm sure, to look at the way Jesus healed those that were sick and those that were blind and those that were in other ways facing difficult circumstances. As Luke gives us those appreciations... 
We do notice in the book of Acts, this same Luke served as a companion on the missionary journeys for several of the chapters in chapters 16 through 21. Amazingly enough, as we read about Luke, we learn about some of these features roughly near the middle of that slide. Perhaps to you and me today, Luke has an especial semblance to the following thought. In 24 chapters, we find Jesus is highlighted as the ideal individual, the ideal being. He has no shortcomings. He has no faults, no weaknesses. There's nothing that would tarnish or mar. He is the ideal specimen of existence. At this point, we might ask, well, who would have benefited from that kind of thinking? It was the Greeks. We still realize today, as we at least give thought to history, that in the history of the world, the Greeks gave us many noted learners, noted scholars, noted philosophers. We can even name many of them, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, those today that our youngsters are still asked to study in school. They supposedly thought deeply. They supposedly were logical. They supposedly presented based on evidence that which was about them. Well, notice what Luke does. He presents Jesus as the best they could do and then some. Luke 2.52 is the key verse. Speaking of Jesus at the time, He was but twelve. But notice the statement made about this youth, about this one named Jesus. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The Greeks were of the mindset to say, if you will give us your youth, we will mold that youth into the finest specimen of existence. In so doing, this person will be powerful socially, he will be powerful mentally, he will be powerful physically. And in the ancient Greek gymnasiums, they did work the body and became great athletes. We're aware, of course, of the Olympics that began in Athens, Greece, the ancient Greeks, but you'll notice Jesus took those three and added one. Again, it says He increased in wisdom, there's one of them mentally, and in stature, there's another physically, and in favor, not just with man, but with God. Jesus, you see, spiritually grew as well. In so doing, that fourfold completion makes one the ideal specimen still to this day. Luke highlights all four of those attributes. Consider just a few of these additional statements. I mentioned the idealness of Christ as shown in Luke, but notice the perfection that emanates from these descriptions. The first two chapters of Luke detail the virgin birth of Jesus. He gives us more details than either Matthew or Mark or John. He highlights the fact that here was one and a whole chapter virtually is given to detail the fact he was born of one and conceived by the Holy Spirit. As those details are presented, we have Zachariah's famous statements and Mary's recollections and so too Elizabeth. All of them reminding us about the nature of this one and the perfection that he brought. Another interesting point so quickly arises in chapter 3. Here we read about the genealogy of Jesus. What makes Luke's genealogy different from Matthew's? Back in Matthew 1, as we noted a few moments ago, the Lord's genealogy is traced back to Abraham and it abruptly stops. Luke goes even further. 
Luke starts there with the very life of Jesus and goes all the way back through 76 generations, not just 42, 76 generations, and arrives back at Adam, the very first man, and quickly then notes Adam was the son of God. The Lord is traced all the way back in essence to the very God at the very beginning. To a Greek, that would have been interesting. And it would also have been very compelling. You'll also appreciate with me this. There is a very lengthy, unique section in Luke. I say very lengthy. Starting in verse 51 of chapter 9 and rolling all the way to chapter 18. We encounter some in very memorable passages. And Luke's the only one that records so many of them. Think about some of the things occurring in that set of chapters. In chapter 10, that famous record that you and I call the Good Samaritan. What about the scene in chapter 15 that we call that trio, the prodigal son, the lost boy, sometimes as we call it, the lost coin, the lost sheep, all of them in Luke 15. In Luke 16, there's that record of the rich man and Lazarus. All of those in this unique section in Luke. One of the things about that unique section is the fact that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem when all that was delivered. He was on His way to the cross. He was on His way to pay the price for human sin. Maybe that in fact helps us see that many of those records take on an added significance. With all of that, we come near the close of this book. And we notice that chapter 24 so fittingly ends it. Did not our heart burn within us? While He opened to us the Scriptures and spoken to us by the way, Luke 24, 32. We notice there Jesus, after His resurrection, as He spoke to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they came to appreciate that He was the very Messiah. And He told them that everything that's been prophesied of Me hath been fulfilled. With that, that brings us to the next book. But before we consider it, perhaps a brief intermission. These first three books we've just studied, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at least by some are grouped together in a heading called the Synoptic Gospel Accounts. That's a fancy word that simply means similar. They often bear, despite what differences we've noted, they often do bear some interesting similarities. In many cases, they record the same miracles or the same parables. In many instances, they cast a spotlight on a similar chronological order. All of that leads us to perhaps say this. As that similarity is set before us, it does lead us to that bottom comment. John appears rather different. And for that reason, it comes next. The book of John. What might we say about that book? the fourth of the gospel accounts. Here at least some comments. As before, a history note. It was written by John, that beloved apostle of love. And we find that he was the one in this book that was called the one whom Jesus loved. When you think about the nature of John, he was the son of Zebedee. We also notice he had a brother named James. They had much to say as we find them first being invited by Jesus. Come and follow me. And they left their nets and did so. But almost immediately, we notice that John wrote five of the New Testament books. And not only that, about the middle of that slide, 
we find in this book an interesting set of highlights, not the least of which are these. We find in John a special notice of the Lord's interest in everybody. Now, we certainly could have appreciated that by careful observation of the previous ones, but notice, here was a ruler named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and the Lord took the time to teach him and help him appreciate the nature of the gospel. And in fact, it'll be that same man that will aid on the occasion of the Lord's burial in John chapter 19. However, he was a Jewish leader. But you'll notice in chapter 4, the Lord took the time to teach a Samaritan woman. Here was a woman at the well at Sychar, and yet the Lord not only entered into conversation with her, but convinced her that He was the Messiah. She went into the city and shared the good news, and they came out in droves to hear Him. Notice, first there was a Jewish ruler, and now a Samaritan woman. Different ethnicities, different sexes, and the Lord took the time for both of them. In chapter number 8, a woman taken in adultery was brought to Him, and the Lord took the time to change her life forevermore. We notice in John chapter 9, there was a man born blind. The Lord not only healed him, but again changed his life completely. In chapter 11, He raised Lazarus from the dead. All of these movements found in the book of John. When you think about that aspect of John, perhaps these other observations are also intriguing. We've noticed in the others, there were things like parables. Of interest is the fact the book of John contains not the first parable. That wasn't the means by which the Holy Spirit chose to bequeath to John the character of delivering His truth. John contains no parables. That's interesting, isn't it? On the other hand, though, in place of those parables, we find some lengthy conversations in John. Think about how much of the chapter in chapter 4 is consumed by the Lord's discussion with that Samaritan woman. Well, over 30 verses taken up by the saga and the movement. A lengthy conversation. Two chapters given to the character of the man born blind in chapters 9 and 10. All of that helps us appreciate that here we find these conversations. And isn't it true, the key verse is John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That was an exclusive pathway to glory, and the Lord stated He is it. The gospel is for everybody. Men or women, boys or girls, young or old, it matters not be it women or Jewish leaders, all are in need of the very one and same gospel, and the Lord was excited and happy to share it with anyone. For all those reasons, John takes us back really even prior to the genealogies of Luke and Matthew, whereas they trace us back to either Abraham or to Adam. We find in the book of John it begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. He is traced all the way back to the eternal character that He had. And with that, the curtain closes on this book. Perhaps it's fair to say that John has an especial interest in the last few days of the Lord's life. Have you ever thought about the fact that beginning in John chapter 13, we have a record that ultimately surrounds the last day, basically, of the Lord's life. 
roughly half that book surrounds the last day that he lived here in the flesh on earth. That's amazing, isn't it? And to this day, we have those great lessons out of all that very last set of chapters in that book of John. Perhaps in fairness, as we come near the close of this lesson, we could certainly say that all four of the gospel accounts end with that record of the Lord's death. Though He was the perfect one, the book of Luke, though He was the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy, book of Matthew, though He was the one with all power and authority, the book of Mark, though He was the one that has blessed everybody, the book of John, wicked men put Him to death. They did so in such a heinous way, such an agonizing and terrible way, but yet death was not able to hold Him. Up from the grave He arose. And these same gospel accounts are so quick to say, You seek for Jesus of Nazareth, but He is not here, Matthew 28, 6. He's risen. And the fact that He rose fills you and me still today with life and with hope. For we know that because He arose, we can rest assured there will be a day of judgment at which we can be found ready and at which we can be ushered into the eternal home that we call heaven. The gospel accounts are fantastic in so many ways. And we arguably haven't even scratched the surface. But we have at least highlighted some of the unique features of each one. And we've prepared ourselves to read them in perhaps a more studious fashion, realizing the great message that's found within them. All four of them end by the commissioning of the apostles. Perhaps Mark's version is the one we'll use for now. We read in Mark 15, or rather Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, where Jesus, after His resurrection, said, Go and preach to every creature until the end of time. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Is it any wonder then, perhaps in summary to this lesson tonight, we can conclude by saying we've been given a highlight in four quick considerations of these four gospel accounts of the greatest life ever lived. You and I are urged to have the mind of Christ in us, Philippians 2.5. We are urged to let Christ dwell in your hearts by faith, Ephesians 3, verses 17 to 19. You and I then ought to be diligent students of the gospel accounts and as we read them to let them touch our heart so that we can live more like Jesus day by day. Tonight, if you haven't lived like Jesus... If things aren't well with you this very evening, let the gospel accounts urge you to think twice about your current state. If we could be of help to you, perhaps as an alien sinner, one that has never been baptized, if you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, if you are prepared to make repentance of the sins in your heart and life, and if you're prepared to make a statement of confession to this very night, you could be a member of the body of Christ. We'd be more than excited to assist you if you have become a member of the church, but at this moment in time, your life has not been faithful, things have clouded your existence to the point where you forgot your first love, Revelation 2.5. Why not let the words of the gospel accounts urge you to come back to your first love? Jesus did die for you. Won't you live for Him? If we could assist you by praying on your behalf this very evening, we'd be honored to do so and happy to as well. And we would only urge you to let us know what way we can assist you and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.